What we're looking at is six essential Christian beliefs. And so we've taken um, these six things and we're spending about two weeks on each one. Um, so here's our calendar. This is what it's going to look like. Uh, I had to adjust a little bit. The doctrine of God is hard to do in two weeks. So the doctrine of God gets three weeks and then the church only gets one. So we, we adjust it. But basically it's going to be two weeks on each one. God is God. We're going to talk about God. Revelation, what I mean by that is scripture. Um, how did God re reveal himself? What does the scripture mean? Um, humanity, we'll look at what it means to be human in the Imago Dei, what it means to be created in God's image. Salvation, church will do in one. And then kingdom, couldn't think of a nice word other than eschatology, but eschatology is not a nice word, so I went with kingdom. We're talking about the end. So personal eschatology, what happens to you at the end when you die? And then general eschatology, what happens in all of creation when, when that ends? And then the 30th, the 13th week, we'll do as a kind of a celebration, maybe uh, open for Q&A uh, or just a dinner or something. So we'll see how the class goes, and we'll kind of talk about it. So um, why these six doctrines? Why do we pick these six of everything we could talk about? Well, the way this class originally started was I was kind of trying to go through the, the EFCA statement of faith with it, which at that time was 12 points. They've since kind of whittled it down a little bit to 10, but it's still basically these bigger categories. So we're trying to go through the, the bigger categories of the statement of faith, and uh, that's where we got these, uh, these six from. Um, so we're going to roughly follow our statement of faith. I'll try to bring it up and, and um, display it when it is appropriate, when we, when we uh, need to understand what, what, our, what we say about these things as uh, Trinity Community Church and the Evangelical Free Church. Um, some resources, uh, we've got Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is really a big doorstop book. It's huge. It's excellent, one of the better systematic theologies. He's got another one called Bible Doctrine, which is kind of his Systematic Theology's mini-me. So it's a smaller version of it. Um, I believe, if I remember it, his son edited the, the systematic theology and kind of whittled it down to this other one. So those would be some helpful things, because what we're going to do is basically a systematic theology. That's, that's what we're going through. So why study doctrine? Why bother? Isn't doctrine divisive, and isn't it hard to understand, and isn't that why we sent you to seminary and you deal with that? Um, yeah, it's divisive. It's supposed to be. That, that's kind of the point of doctrine, is it's supposed to divide. Um, this is true and this is not. That's a doctrine that's, that's saying something's true and something's not. Um, it is kind of a big thing, and there are depths which you can go into to, uh, a theology. So, like, we're going to talk about the Trinity today. We could easily do a 13-week course on the Trinity and not exhaust the topic. So, you know, yeah, doctrine is, is, can be as deep as you want or as simple as you want. But there's something more important about doctrine, and, and that is there is a way in which we conform to our image of who God is. It kind of shapes who we are. So if we have a wrong idea of God, we're going to wind up being kind of weird in this world. It's not going to work right. Um, God has revealed himself to us, so we have the scriptures, and he's shown us who he is. And so what, what I mean by we conform to that is, so this is from Psalm, um, oops, no, that's not. This is from Psalm 135. And the psalmist says, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. 
They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now that does not mean that idolaters will lose their eyes and their mouths and their hands and stuff. What it's talking about is the way they understand this idol, what this God represents, is what you will conform yourself to. Because think about it, what is a God? A God is really the ideal person, right? The, the perfect. It is the all-being. And so if that's what we think of as is ultimately good, and we try to reach towards that, we will go towards that vision of who God is. So that's what the psalmist is saying, is, is they're worshiping these idols, and they will conform to that image of the world. Um, there's a pastor in Chicago, a pastor of Moody Bible Church named A.W. Tozer in the 1950s. And he wrote this book. This is the next one for the uh, Trinity Reads table, by the way. It's a really good little book. Um, he, what he says is, what comes into the mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. He's defining, as we understand who God is, he's defining for us what the good life is. What does it mean to be good and right and pure? And so let me give you an example of what this looks like. Um, the Norse people were the Vikings. And the Vikings were not Hagar the Horrible in the comic strips. They were brutal. They were vicious people. A friend of ours from Norway said she was really grateful that Christian missionaries came to Norway because they basically tamed her people. They were brutal. Why were they brutal? Well, one of the reasons that they were, oh, I meant to skip this. There we go. One of the reasons that they were brutal was their creation story, their creation myth. And what that was, let me explain to you how the Norse, um, pre-Christian Norse uh, mythology went. The Norse believed that the, the universe emerged from an empty, yawning gulf between worlds made of ice and of fire, inhabited only by a mysterious, mysterious being named Ymir. Uh, so Ymir was this, this giant who existed out of nothing. He just was. Uh, Buri got licked out of a block of ice by a divine cow and lived with Yuri. So Buri and Ymir were the two kind of God things. Now, where'd the cow come from? The divine cow who licked a block of ice and then we wind up with Buri. We don't know. We don't get into that. Eventually, Buri had children. Um, the children were Vili, V, and Odin. And these three children decided to create the world. But Norse gods cannot create out of nothing. They wanted to create a world and populate it. So they did what would any Norse god would reasonably assume would be the right thing to do. They killed Ymir. They, they cut him up. Uh, they stabbed him, cut him up, and they, they cut off his head, and they ripped his skull open, and the inside of the skull is the dome of the sky above us. That's what the, the Norse mythology says, is the, the dome of the sky is Ymir's skull. The clouds, that's his brain still floating around in there. The, the earth is created out of his bones and his teeth, that's mountains and hills, and the seas are filled with his blood. So if that's the kind of world that you inhabit, if that's the way that the world was created according to your view, what is the right way to live in that world? To be violent. The, the world is inhabited, it was created in violence, so we must be violent. And so look at the, the Vikings, they were very violent people. 
Now, were they violent and therefore they, in, they embraced this creation myth or did this creation myth make them violent? I, th I think it's hard to sort out and it's probably an interplay between them. But the point is, this was their view of who God was and this is where they drifted toward. And so they became extremely violent people. So it's really important for us to understand um, who God is because that is where we'll be going to. And this, that's not an unbiblical idea, right? We, we were uh, elect from the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of the Son. We will drift towards that image. We will be led by the Spirit towards that image. So um, that's Ymir. <laughs> There's Norse mythology. Uh, it's not pretty. Um, within Christianity, we talk about there being one God. We're what's called a monotheistic religion, right? There's only one God. There are other monotheistic religions in the world. The two biggest monotheistic religions in the world are Islam and Judaism. And so with Islam and Judaism, they say that there's one God and he's one person. He's only one person. Um, they will tend to argue because they both go to Abrahamic tradition, but they say that Allah chose Ishmael to bless. And the Jews go, no, Yahweh chose Isaac to bless. And so they, they have a, now they're having a fight over this one God, who he is and who he's not. And then a Christian comes up and goes, yeah, hey, by the way, we worship the same God. Really cool. Yeah, he's one God in three persons. And they look at you like you're insane. What do you mean one God in three persons? That's not possible. That's not rational. It doesn't make any sense. And so they go back to arguing about the one God. But it is hard to explain, right? Trinitarian theology is difficult. It's some of the most, like, fry your noodle kind of stuff out there. Um, so why don't we just ditch it? I mean, why do we have to go with Trinitarian theology? It's so confusing. Why not go with a monotheistic religion with a, what they call a monite, a, a monist God? He's just one. Well, there are problems with Trinitarian theology, and it's hard to get, and we'll see that tonight. But there are problems with monistic uh, theology as well. And what I mean by monistic is the God is just one person. And the, rate, the way you get into problems with this is you ask the, the monotheistic person, the monite, mono, 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 whatever I just said, person, what was God doing before creation? What was he up to before he created anything? And this is where you start running into problems. Because if there is a God who is by himself, he is all alone, why did he create? Now, if he created because he was all alone and lonely, that's a pretty pathetic God. He is dependent on his creation. He was not happy until he created a creation. So that's a problem. That, that doesn't fit within what's called uh, classic theology. One of the aspects of classic theology is God is sufficient in and of himself. He didn't need anything. So you say, okay, well, well, um, what does this God do? What is his, his primary characteristic? And by the way, I'm going with this stuff. I'm going from this book. It's out on the, the Trinity Reads table, uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's really good because it's written at a level that I can understand. <laughs> it's, it's written for normal people. Some of the stuff I've been looking at to try to get through the, the Trinitarian theology really hurts, but he makes it beautiful. So I recommend reading that if, if what we're talking about tonight engages you. Um, so Reese says, what is God's identity? Who is he? And so if you say that God is 
the creator, that's who he is, or the ruler, then you run into this problem. He needs a creation to be the creator. So before creation, he wasn't satisfied in and of himself because he's the creator and there's nothing created. So he created because it was a need. And if he's a ruler, he didn't have anything to rule because he was all by himself. So he created a creation to rule. So in either one of those cases, the problem is this God's dependent on us. He needs us. And the, the other problem with this is um, if you go with the idea that God is the ruler, that's who he is. It's kind of what Islam says with Allah. If you say God primarily, what he is is he's a ruler. Well, not only does that pro cause a problem before creation, it causes a problem with salvation. Because if he's the ruler, he sets up these laws, right? Here are my laws, and this is what you must do. And so if you violate those laws, what does the ruler do? He zaps you. He, get, he judges you. Now, if he comes to you and says, you violated this law, but I'm going to pardon you. That's nice, but imagine if a cop pulled you over. Cop pulls you over and says, you, you were speeding so fast through this residential neighborhood. You have no idea how dangerous this intersection is. There have been eight people killed within the last year at this intersection, and you sped right through here. And, man, you're just, like, terrified. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. And the cop says, yeah, this is terrible, and I, if you go to before a judge, they're going to hammer you. I'm going to let you off. What would your feeling toward that cop be? Gratitude? High five? Like him? Thanks, man. Would you love that cop? Would you want to establish a relationship with that cop? You might go tell other people about him. He's the best cop. He let me off. But you can't have a, a relationship of love. So if God is primarily, primarily a ruler and he lets you off, your response to him is high five. Thanks, dude. But it's not one of love. It's more of, of duty and, and uh, requirements. So that's kind of the problem with taking these approaches. What if we go with the Christian definition? God is love, right? First John tells us God is love. What was God doing if he's a, um, 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 monism, if he's only one person? What was he doing before creation? Well, he is love. That's primarily who he is. And he didn't have anybody to love, so he created the world so he could love people. Again, we're back to a dependent God. Or you could say, well, before creation, he was just loving himself. Because who wouldn't you love? I mean, why wouldn't you love yourself? He's God. He's perfect. He does everything wonderfully, right? Then creation turns into an interruption to him. He is, he is delighting in himself. He's, he's loving himself. He's, he's satisfied in who he is. And then creation comes along. And now, well, I don't love that the same way. It's not me. So I'm not happy with it. Creation turns into an interruption for, for a, mono, um, um, a monite God, for a one-person God. So there's problems if you do that. If you just say God is just one, one person. What if we go with the Trinity, with the, the way that we define who God is? Well, let's, let's define that first. So here's our statement of faith. We believe in one God. We're monotheistic, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. So that's what we mean when we talk about God in our context. 
He is holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three persons. So this is what that looks like when we talk about the Trinity. This is called the Trinity Shield. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. The Father's not the Son. They're three persons. We'll get into that in a little bit, but there is one God. They are one person. So what is this God doing before creation? This God who is love. The Father has eternally loved the Son. There was never a time when the Son was not beloved of the Father. The Son has always loved the Father. Why would you not love the Father? He is perfect. He's God. He's all these wonderful attributes who God is. That's who the Father is. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son love the Spirit. So there's, there's, in eternity past, we can say God is love, and not in the sense of a monist saying he loves himself. This is what theologians call ad extra, toward the other. So God the Father is not the Son, but the God the Father who is not the Son has always loved the Son. He's always loved the other. The Spirit has always loved the Father. But the Father and the Spirit are not one person. They're two people. They're two different persons in this Trinity. So we can say God in eternity past has always been love. And his love has always been ad extra. It's always been focused on the other. So now why does this God create? Does he create because he's bored? How can you be bored? You've got two other divine persons, perfect in divinity. All three persons are delighting for eternity past in being in the presence of the perfect. They They weren't bored. Do they create because they were lonely? They were never lonely. The Father always had the Son. The Spirit always had the Son. They didn't do it because they were lonely. So then why do they create? Because they have this inner Trinitarian love for each other that is so wonderful and so great they want to share it. They, they create not from deficiency, but from excess. We love each other. We understand our perfections together. Let's make some more people to enjoy this. Let's create others so that they can come in and enjoy this love too. So it's just a much better way of, of defining why God would create. Does that make sense? Is that, is that reasonable? Any questions on that? Anybody head scratching? Okay, now we're going to get into the hard stuff. <laughs> that's the easy stuff. That's, that's great. I love that. Um, so then we got to focus on this center part. So what we're going to do today is we're going to focus primarily on the Trinity and on divinity. Next week we'll talk about the Father and the Spirit. And then the week after that we'll do the Son because the Son is a thorny problem in and of himself because he became incarnate. So what does that mean? So this week we're just going to focus on God. So what do we mean by God? What is God? When we use that term, what do we mean by it? Well, here's what the Bible refers to God as. God is love. He is love. That's who he is. God is light. God is one. He he is only one. That's that's a weird phrase, by the way. Why would the... Why would the Jews say God is one? Be, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They didn't think he was two. They knew he was one. It's a strange phrase, and it's, it's really interesting that it comes up in the Bible. But the one that's most often used is God is holy. That's repeated over and over again. As a matter of fact, we get into Revelation and in uh, Isaiah, they say it repeatedly. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. So that's, that's his primary attribute. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So 
when we talk about God's attributes, what we mean is, what is he like? What is, what is his, what does he do? What is he, what is he capable of? What is his basic idea, his, his essence? What is he, he like in that? And so, um, I want to talk about some divine attributes, not all of them, because we don't know all of them. Uh, we only know the ones that God has revealed to us. One of the first ones is something called self-existence or aseity. It's a fancy word. It's the Latin for he is. Asse is he is in Latin. So aseity is God just exists. So God is dependent on no other for existence. There was never anybody who came. So when a child says, who created God? Nobody. God is, God is existence. Nobody creates existence. He just is. And so uh, we get that from Acts 17, where Paul is talking on um, on um, Mars Hill. He talks about God has no need for anybody else. He just is. Or from Exodus chapter 3, when Moses goes up and sees this burning bush that's not consumed, and God starts talking to him from the bush and sends him to go deliver his people from Egypt, he says, what, who am I supposed to say sent me? And God's answer is, I am that I am. In other words, I, I just am. That's all. I don't have a name. I just am existence. I am. And so that's who God is at his essence, is he just is. We depend on him for existence. There was a time when you didn't exist. So the old myth about there's a gumball machine in heaven with all these little souls in there, and, and when a baby's about to be born, God cranks the crank and a soul pops out, and that, that's not true. Um, you didn't exist at some point, and then you did. So that's, that's, we are dependent on God. One of the definitions we talk about when we talk about the relationship of the Trinity is we say that Jesus Christ is eternally begotten of the Father and that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Father is, the Son is eternally begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds. So does that mean, since the, the Son is eternally begotten, does that mean that he does not share in a aseity? He owes his existence to the Father. I told you this was going to get hairy. <laughs> huh? That's the $100 million question. <laughs> um, what we know is the scripture reveals that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. In other words, he comes from the Father in some way. But he's eternally begotten. So there was never a time when the Son didn't exist. The Son has always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father. And so what we say in this is, yes, the Son does share in aseity because he did not not exist at some point and start existing. He just always has been. Um, I'll talk about the relationship and how the Son can be begotten and that kind of stuff in a little bit. Um, but the other thing is, Jesus himself claims aseity. And he does it in a really peculiar way. In John 8:58, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the phrase, it sounds weird in English, it sounds weird in Greek too. In Greek, it's ego mi. Ego is me, and mi is I am. So it's me, I am. That phrase is how the Greek Old Testament translated the divine name Yahweh. 
So at Exodus 3, when God says, I am, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says, ego am I. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees this, this is why they pick up stones and try to kill him. He just claimed divinity. He just said, I am God. And the word, the name he used was the name of aseity. I am. I just am. Before Abraham was, I am. I've always been. So yes, the son does share in, in um, aseity with the father. Immutability is another attribute we talk about with God. God does not change. He is incapable of change. Um, this comes from verses such as Psalm 102, 26 and 27, Malachi 3, 6, and James 1, 17. James 1, 17. They talk about God's unchangeable nature. So think about this for a second. If God is perfect, and he is, what would change mean for him? If, if, he's, if, if we had a pyramid and at the top is perfection, and God is there at the top, he's perfect, and he changes. There's only one way, down. He could only be less perfect. If he could change and become more perfect, then he wasn't perfect before his change. So when we talk about immutability, we say God cannot change. He's, he's incapable of change because he's perfect. Um, we change quite a bit. Um, I used to have hair. Um, I used to have knees. I used to not need glasses. So our, physically we change. Emotionally we change. Mentally we change. But God doesn't. He is immutable. God is eternal. We talk about his eternality. He is without beginning. He is without end. Um, we get that from verses like Psalm 90, verse 2, and Revelation 1.8. I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God has always been. He's eternal. Um, like I said, you didn't exist before your birth. There's no, no gumball machine. Sorry about that. You didn't exist before your birth. So we're not eternal. We will have eternal life, but we didn't exist eternally backwards. Um, so, yeah, so eternality is, is another one of his, his attributes. Oh, um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. This is, therefore, God is outside of time. So before God created the universe, he was. When he created the universe, that's when time began. And, the, and if you really want to get into it, how do you measure time? You can only measure time by the difference, by the movement of two objects away from each other or towards each other. You can only measure time by moving, by watching something move. If there's nothing to move, then there's no time. So God exists eternally outside of time. So when he sees, when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I know the beginning from the end, he's saying, I stand outside time, and time is laid out before me. So I can see all of these events in front of me. That, that's what we mean when it, we talk about his eternality. God is omnipresent. He's, play, he's present at every point in the universe. There's no place where he isn't. Uh, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the mountains, you are there. If I go to the sea, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. There is no place that God isn't. Um, what about epiphanies? What about when he showed up on Mount Sinai or walked in front of Moses at, uh, on the mountain or appeared to uh, Elijah as a whirlwind? Well, he didn't stop being omnipresent. He just chose to manifest his presence in a very concrete way at a specific place at a specific time. 
but he's still present throughout the universe. Why is that? Because he's also omniscient. In other words, he knows everything. So if he knows everything, he knows that there is an atom in a galaxy 100 billion, billion light years away from here, and he knows exactly what it's doing because he knows everything. So he is, in that sense at least, present everywhere in the universe. If he didn't know what that atom was up to, that atom could have profound effects 100 million years later that might throw off his plan. And so he, he can't not know those things. Um, so he, he has to have omniscience. He has to be able to know everything. Um, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Uh, there's nothing he can't do that he decides he wants to do. Um, our power is pretty vast, but it's still limited. But God doesn't have that problem. So here's, here's the question. Can God create a rock so big he can't move it? Sounds really clever, doesn't it? The, the, the problem with that question is the problem of definitions. Can God create something that he can't affect? Well, if he created it, he already affected it. So that, that, the question right off the bat just doesn't work. And the way I love to answer it when I get a smart aleck asking that question, I go, absolutely, he could, yes. Then there's something he can't do. No, then he'd move it. So he creates a, a, a boulder he can't move, and then he moves it. So there's nothing he can't do. The better answer, the better question to that I've heard is not a question so much of definitions as it is of character. I was having lunch with a guy that I worked with. He was a Mormon, and we were talking theology. Talk theology with a Mormon sometime. And we were talking about God, and he said, can God sin? I said, well, of course not. He said, I'm not comfortable with that. There's, a God, there's something that God can't do? I said, well, it's, the answer to that is not he can't sin as if there's something restraining him from doing it. He doesn't want to because he's holy. Why would he sin? It's, it's not something he would ever want to do. So he can't sin because it's not in his character. It's not in the nature of who he is. And besides, now we, if we want to get back to the problem of definitions. What is sin? Sin is doing something other than what God wants. So, no, God can't sin. So it's kind of the same kind of thing. But God can do all things, right? So when, um, when Israel was being attacked, he, he comes to the king and he says to the king, ask me for any sign and I will give it to you to show that I'm going to defeat these two kings. And the king says, oh, no, I would never do that. He, he knows his theology. Don't test your God. He says, okay, fine, I'll show you what I'm going to do. The virgin will conceive and bear a child. Nothing's too difficult for him. So he's, he's omnipotent. He can do all of these things. So when we talk about these characters, these are the ones that we would call non-communicable attributes, which doesn't mean we can't talk about them. It means he, these are attributes of God he didn't share with us. So they're not things that we inherit. There are many other attributes that he did share with us. Love, intelligence, creativity. Um, wrath, uh, uh, peace, you know, those kind of things. But these are the ones that are unique to him. When we talk about all of these things, when we put all of these attributes together, we say, this is who God is. All of these things are, are part of who he is. We have to be able, careful in how we understand that. One mistake is to think that God is a collection of attributes, just kind of all wrapped together. And that's who God is. And so his, his mercy's over here, and boy, aren't you glad it's on... Oh, no, it's right next to wrath. Boy, that's got to be an internal struggle for him. He's, they're right next. They're bumping into each other. That's going to be tough. That's not what God's like. He's not a clump of these different attributes. This is something we call divine simplicity. He just is. 
So the other way that you can make a mistake on this is you can say there's God, and then he has these things that, that, that kind of adhere to him. Uh, because of who he is, he has these things sticking out. That's not how God is. God just is. And so when we understand him, when we talk about him, we have to say, well, his wrath. But it's not like he has this other separate compartment of his wrath. His wrath is never in conflict with his mercy or his love. He can love somebody and hate somebody at the same time because he just is. So that's divine simplicity. And then the other thing we talk about is that God is one. Um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Mark 12, 29. One of the ways that the word one is used it can be unique. So Zechariah 14, 7 says, it's talking about the day of the Lord, and it says, in that unique day. But actually what it is in Hebrews is in that one day. Now that doesn't mean that the day of the Lord is a single 24-hour period. What it means is it's, it's one, it's off, it's unique. So is that what we mean when we say God is one, is that he's unique? There's a better way to say that. What we mean when we say God is one is I think what God was doing was, was planting the seeds way back then to say, I'm going to reveal myself in a way that is going to be confusing for you. And so let me start with the fact that I am one. I am not three people. I, or I'm not three gods or three different things. I am one. And so that's, that's what we're going to look at when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity. What about holy? God, I said uh, on that one slide that God is holy. Um, what do we mean by God is holy? Well, I think Joel's Sunday school class, if you missed it, was, was perfect. He was talking about worship. And he said, we tend to think of holy as unique, odd, different. He said, but if I had a, an, an arm growing out of my forehead, I would be different. Would I be holy? He's, if I was purple, I would be different. Am, would I be holy? That can't be what holy means. So what, what holy means in the scriptural sense is holy is different, but different in a way that's worthy of praise, different in a way that's worthy of worship, something that you would adore, something that is so beautiful, so utterly other, that it, it transcends all of those things. So that's a better way to think about his holiness. So when we talk in the Bible, we see God is holy, and he's not only holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. What we're saying is everything that we've said so far comes into who God is. And so he is not only other than us, he has attributes we don't share, but he's beautiful in those attributes. He, he's, he's worthy of praise in those kind of things. So is that cool? Are we good with this? Any questions, comments, concerns? Anybody labeling me a heretic yet? Yes, sir. So is it, I guess <clears throat> I've always thought of holy as like instead of heart. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think it's they're attached because uh, one of the pans that they would use in the uh, temple to scoop up the ashes off the temp off the uh, the um, altar was holy. Did that mean it was beautiful and worthy of praise? <laughs> no, like you said, it was set aside for something. But why was the temple holy? Because God was there. So why was the lampstand holy? Not because of the shape of it. It's kind of like, I, I heard a, a story about somebody who claimed to have replicated the Ark of the Covenant. They went to the Bible and they looked at how it was built and they replicated it and it killed people because it had an electrical charge to it. I'm like, 
Okay, you can't do that because <laughs> the Bible doesn't get that specific. Um, so explain to me what a cherubim is. What did it look like in, in you know back then? And you know there's just not enough detail in it. Um, so why was it holy? Was it holy because of the shape of the thing? No, it's holy because God said make this. And while they're making it, it wasn't holy. They, the common people are out there banging on it and you know bending metal and stuff. It was holy when it was brought into the temple and consecrated with the blood, and God came down and filled the temple. So that holiness comes from God. And so it's useful, it's set apart, but it's not the holy that, that God is holy. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a quibble or a yabut or something? I think that I think it's the best way to understand it, is, is there's a, a derived holiness. So like even in... in um, uh, Jesus asked this question, or was it Jesus? I can't remember where it is now. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I'm under pressure. <laughs> um, talks about if uh, the meat from the altar touches a garment, it becomes holy. Well, why? Because meat is holy? No, because the meat was set aside for the sacrifice. The sacrifice is holy because it's going to a holy God. So it's it's a derivative kind of thing. Anything else? Okay, let's talk about the Trinity. Uh, we're stepping onto holy ground, so I kind of feel like I should take my shoes off. You know, this this is where it gets really difficult. Um, our definition is that God eternally exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons. Um, so here's what we could say. Another way to say the Trinity is God is one. God is three persons. And each person is fully God. So this is, this is how we have to think about these things. We've defined what God is, his nature, what he's like. And now how does he exist? Well, he exists as three loving persons. So immediate question, what's a person? I, I got to tell you, since they started talking about the Trinity and, and discussing this and, and dealing with the heretics, person has been one of the hard ones to define. You can't really define it so much as illustrate it or point at it and go, yeah, that's a person. So um, the free dictionary online says it, it's the composite of characteristics that make up an individual personality, the self. Thanks. Nailed it. I don't know what that means. The problem with that, though, is it's very internally focused, is I am a person because I am a person, and I decide that I'm a person. Um, I can't find the quote. I was, Lisa would tell you, at dinner I was freaking out trying to find this great quote that I heard so I'm trying to recreate it. I, I, I can't remember what it said, but it basically said that a person is one who can say you. And so the idea there is there is a person, and that person is not you. That person has, has uh, the, the awareness that there is another person in front of them, that they're not the same thing. So, for example, a fetus in a mother's womb um, it can't speak, obviously, but he can be aware that he is not his mother. He can't control what's going on out there. He hears the noise. He hears the heart rate. It's not my heartbeat. So he can be aware that this person he's inside of is not him, not an extension of him. Um, so I think the best answer that I read went something like, a person can only be defined in relation to other persons. A person is one who exists and is then identified in a relationship of origin to other persons. To have a person, there must be other persons. So that's what I meant by the idea that a person is someone that can say you because there's a relationship. And why do we go like that? Why would we say it that kind of hairy? 
Because when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, anything else we come up with is not going to work. So the, the son has to be able to look at the father and say, you are my father. I'm not you, you're not me, but we recognize each other as persons. The, the spirit can say to the father, you sent me. He can come and say, this is who Jesus is. They're both God, but they're distinct persons. They're not the same person. The Spirit doesn't come and say, I am Jesus. He says, this is what Jesus is like. So the Father is a person in relationship to the Son. The Son is a person in relationship to the Father. So my first thought on this was, wait a minute. Adam was created first and then Eve. So was Adam not a person until Eve was created? Because there was no other person. I'm making a classic mistake here. I'm equating person with human. There was another person. As a matter of fact, there were three other persons. There was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Adam could exist as a person because he knew he wasn't God. And so he could exist as a person. So when we talk about the persons of the three persons of the Trinity, they are distinct from each other and yet are God. So um, you can't take the Holy Spirit out and say, here's, here's a portion of God. The Holy Spirit is God. If you take the Holy Spirit out, you don't have God. It's not like you can break them up into three different pieces and still have God. So um, I was going to do something here. Persons. Ah, I can't remember. Um, on the handout that I don't have for you is <laughs> something called the Athanasian Creed. Um, it was written around 500 about 200 years after Athanasius' death, but it was Athanasian in that it was his theology. And it is just a great definition of the Trinity because it says that we worship God and Trinity, uh, not dividing or confusing the persons. And then goes through and says, God the Father is immeasurable. God the Spirit is immeasurable. God the Son is immeasurable. Yet there are not three immeasurable beings, but one. And so it maintains the distinction between the three. Um, I can't remember. There's something I'm not doing right now that I should, and I don't remember what it was. So let me talk about some challenges to, to uh, what we would call classic theology. One is something called open theism. Open theism sounds nice, right? Open's a good thing. Theism is a good thing, so this must be good, right? Open theism basically says, this is the long definition, but I'll, I'll kind of sum it up for you. Open theism says God so much wanted to have a relationship with human beings and he wanted it to be based on real, genuine, true love that he chooses not to exercise some of his divine attributes. So he doesn't know the future. He chooses, though he is omniscient, he could know the future. He chooses not to know the future. Because if God knows the future, if God knew that Easter of 1985, I would become a believer, then I'm not free to not become a believer in that, uh, Easter of 1985. And therefore, I'm a robot, and my love for God is not real, because God knows what I'll do. If he knows infallibly what the future is, then I can't have true relationship with him. That's, that's the theory. That's the idea. Um, this is a, a problem within the church. It's within evangelicalism. Just about split the Evangelical Theological Society. The ETS has basically a three-point statement of faith. And the open theist said, we are completely in line with the three-point statement of faith. And the way they eventually booted him from ETS was they said, you can't believe in biblical inerrancy. 
because God doesn't know the future. If God doesn't know the future, then he cannot guarantee the promises that he makes in the Bible. He can only guess at them. So if God chooses not to know the future, if he chooses to let people freely, independently of him, make their own decision to believe in him or not, then the father could never tell the son, go redeem a people for myself. What he could say is, go try to redeem a people for myself. And gosh, you know, you're going to get crucified, but I really hope somebody believes in you. Because God chooses not to know those things. So then how could he know that um, Jerusalem would fall in 70 AD? He's a really good guesser. <laughs> it's just not satisfying. It, it tears at the, the divine nature of who God is. So how do we answer that? How do we say, well, God knows the future infallibly, and yet I'm free to choose him? Because <laughs> this is one of the ideas of omniscience. God knows everything in the world, everything that will happen, everything that has happened. But he also knows what are called counterfactuals. So not only does he know what happened, he knows what would have happened if that hadn't happened. So God knows exactly what time I was going to wake up this morning. And he knows what would have happened had I woken up 30 minutes early, or 30 seconds earlier or five minutes later. He knows all the counterfactuals. Try to fit that in your head. I, I can't imagine knowing everything that does happen, let alone every possibility that could happen. So then God could know for a fact that I would choose to believe in him in, in um, Easter of 1985 because he also knows what it would look like if I didn't. So the, the, the problem with that open theists have is they don't trust God's power enough to say that I know the future infallibly and I know that this person will freely choose me. I'm not going to have to force them to do it. I know them. I created them. I know everything about them. I know everything that's going to happen in the world. I know all the conditions that they will be facing at that point. I know what their childhood would be like. I know what the temperature will be. I know what the barometric pressure at the moment they decide to trust in me will be. So I know this person will believe in me. So it's, it's just not a, a, a helpful way of doing this. The people who articulate this, one of them is a guy that used to treat, teach at, at TEDS, the seminary I went to, a guy named Clark Pinnock. Um, he kind of wrestled with the free will question and wound up falling on the open theist side. Where you'll see this out in the wild, though, not with the, the academics, but just kind of out um, in common people, is a pastor in Minneapolis named Greg Boyd. And uh, Greg Boyd teaches open theism. And so his, his, he's very much pastoral about it. It's not an academic thing for him. And so he would say, if I go to a family and I say, you know, you're, it's, it's terrible that your child was killed, and I'm really sorry about that. But, you know, when they say to me, well, why would God do that? Why would God allow that to happen? It's much more loving to say, God didn't know anything about that. He wouldn't have let that happen. He didn't want that to happen. And now you've got God grieving with you, and doesn't that feel much better? Except, what about my next child? Can he protect him? I, it, it doesn't breed hope. It, it, it gives you a moment of... of um, comfort, but it just doesn't bring any kind of hope. So open theism is one of the big challenges to, uh, uh, to classic theism. The next one, I wish Jonathan Racy was here because he and I have talked about this. This one is called the Eternal Functional Subordination of the Sun, or ESS, Eternal Subordination of the Sun. Um, what that means is God the Father has always been the Father. God the Son has always been the Son. The role of the Father is to set the agenda. 
So he says, this is what we're going to do. And so the role of the son is to come along to the father and say, yes, father, we'll do that. So it doesn't sound terrible, does it? The eternal functional subordination. Before the world was created, the son subordinated his will to the father's will. He said, father, whatever you want to do, I'll do that. So that's uh, articulated by Wayne Grudem, whose book I just plugged for you. <laughs> I like Grudem a lot. He's really good. I think he's wrong on this. But he, that doesn't mean he's a bad person. Um, so here's his example. He says, if the son is not eternally subordinate to the father in role, then the father is not eternally father and the son is not eternally son. And that would mean that the Trinity has not eternally existed. Right? The father is the father because he is, he is in the authority over the son. The son is the son because he's under the father, father's authority. And so for Grudem, if that's not the case, then we don't have a Trinity. So here's how one group answered. OPC is not only pure church. It's Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so I love the way they articulated this. The problem is this. If authority over the Son is essential, if it's an attribute of the Father, and subordination to the Father is essential, if it's an attribute of the Son, then authority is part of the Father's essence or nature, and subordination is part of the Son's essence or nature, and that would mean that the essence of the Father is different from the essence of the Son. So they're arguing the same thing, aren't they? Grudem's saying if the Father is not, uh, doesn't have authority over, or isn't in authority over the Son, then you don't have a Trinity. And here he's saying if the Father has authority over the Son because it's essential to his nature, then the Father and the Son have different natures. And so it, uh, this isn't helping. So me and other people have said it this way. The Son is the Son, and the Father is the Father, not because one has authority and one submits to authority, but because the Father begot the Son. My Son now, now that he's an adult, I don't have authority over him. I can't go and tell him, Benjamin, thou shalt, because he's, he's grown. When he was a little boy, I had authority over him, but now he's a grown man. I don't, does that mean I am no longer his father? Good heavens, I hope not. <laughs> I love him. I don't want him to not be my son anymore. It means that, that the authority portion is not endemic. It is not part of the relationship between a father and a son. So I would, I would say that they're wrong. I think Grudem is wrong in saying that that's na that has to be in the Trinity for there to be a father-son relationship. I don't think that's right. Here's the other thing. If you and I agree, we're going to go eat at... Um, We'll eat at Chipotle today. And you go, I totally agree with that. Did you just submit to me? Because I came up with it first? No, you agreed with me. That's not submission. Right? If, if you both agree, that's not submission. So for there to be submission in the eternal, before creation trinity, then the Father had to have a will that was not in alignment with the Son. And the son had to say, I will forego my will and agree with yours. That's subordination. If the father and the son say, you're going to go into the world and you're going to, you're going to take on a human nature and you're going to die and you're going to rise again and you're going to win a people to us and we agree, that's not subordination. So the problem then comes is if there are two wills in the divinity, that, that center portion of the, the, the shield that was divine is will in there. Or could the father have a different will than the son? Or is will endemic to that, that nature? There, there's only one divine will. 
That's that's a tough question, and that's where Jonathan Racy and I have been going back and forth on. Is I'm not sure if it belongs there. Where do you put that? <laughs> but I think the problem is is if the father has a will to do this and the son has a will to do this, which one's right? Which one is correct? And if one is correct and one's not, now we're tearing at the divinity again because now they're not omniscient. One is less omniscient than the other. So eternal functional subordination of the son, messy, difficult topic. Why bring it up? Where does it come from? Because Wayne Grudem is arguing for, arguing for what we call complementarianism, that women can't be elders or pastors in the church. And his argument goes, because subordination's not bad. So if women are subordinate to the, to the men in the church, that's not a bad thing. That's always been. That's, that's happened in the Trinity, in, in eternity past. I used to argue that. <laughs> and, and a friend of mine pointed out, you got problems if you go there. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. So I've kind of backed off that. Did you have something, Chris? It's funny you mention that because um, when we talk about the three persons, it comes from the Latin word persona, and what the persona was in Latin was the mask that the actor put on. So when an actor would go on stage, they put this mask on and they would play this role and then they take it off and they put this other mask on. And that was their posana. So, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot I'm, I'm mic'd. I'm supposed to repeat these. So can we think of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as different roles that God plays at different times? Or all at the same time. Um, in a sense, yes, because that's what persona means. That's what person means. In another way, absolutely not. Because what you wind up with is not a trinity. And now you go, well, there's, there's actually an ancient heresy. I think we'll talk about it when we talk about uh, Jesus, his incarnation, that said, in the Old Testament, God appeared as father. Well, he didn't. He only appeared as father a couple of times there. But he was Yahweh. He was the thundering God who was zapping people. During the gospel period, God appeared as the son. And so he's nice and peace-loving, and he's, he's the suffering servant. And now in the age of the church, God appears as the spirit. But there's only one God. He just appears in different roles. And then you run into Jesus' baptism, where all three show up at the same time. And he had to be really fast change artist to be able to do all of that or something, so that doesn't work. Um, so it's best to not think of it as different roles, because you can, you can slide into modalism and, and, um, and make that mistake. <laughs> it's not something. Um, they do have different roles. The father is the father. He begets the son. The son is the son. He is begotten of the father. The father and the son send the spirit. He proceeds from the father and the son. And so the, the father and the son. That's what I was going to talk about. Thank you for asking that. I'm not 100% on board with this, but I want to share it with you. There's a, a paper written by Jonathan Edwards called, uh, it, it's about the Trinity and, and how the Trinity works. And I'm with it about 80% of the way through, and then I get kind of lost. So why is there a father? Why is there a son? Why is there a Holy Spirit? Why isn't there a fourth one? And so Edwards, who could hold a thought in his head for hours, I can't hold a thought in my head for more than about three seconds. He, could, he would go out on a horse ride, and he would just contemplate this one thing for an hour. He thought about the Trinity. And so um, here's how he explains the Trinity. There is God the Father. He is. 
God the Father understands who he is so perfectly. He understands, he comprehends himself so perfectly and so fully that this comprehension of himself is actually another person. Because if he understood it so that it's not another person, the only thing that, uh, that comprehension would lack would be existence. And it can't lack anything because it's this full comprehension of who he is. So the Father understanding all of who he is in such a perfect detail is the Son. The Father begets the Son eternally because was there ever a time when God didn't understand himself? No. So God the Father eternally begets the Son. He eternally understands who he is in all of this perfection, in all of who he is, so much so that he can't even lack existence because he exists. Therefore, this conception of himself must exist. Does that make sense? You don't have to agree with it, but... So this is a train of thought I've been down before and read some Edwards. And I know what you're talking about because I was I went down this rabbit trail years ago because I could not think about it. And uh, someone else was commenting on it and made an argument that God's existence began. Obviously, God is always existent. But basically, existence was God comprehending himself. Mm. And that... So simultaneously, everything occurred at once. God existed, and his comprehension of himself existed, and the connection between the two, their existence, the substance of their existence was the Holy Spirit. Obviously, it's it's theoretical because we cannot understand it. The best we've got is we know that the Son is begotten of the Father. That's that's scriptural. The comprehension theory is great. Yeah. So so God so fully, fully comprehends himself that it is another person. It is because if he didn't exist, then that would be one attribute of himself that didn't it didn't adhere into that. So now you've got the father and the son before time existed. <laughs> and we've got to go back and, and pretend like it's in time because that's all we understand. So the father comprehends the son. The son comprehends the father because that's part of who he is. And so now the father and the son are comprehending each other. They, they fully understand each other in all their divinity and all their perfection and all their beauty and all everything that's wonderful about them. And there is love between the two. There is mutual admiration between the two. And that love and that respect and that, that desire for each other is so strong that it is a third person. It, it, it is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's not a force. It is that love because love isn't just an emotion. It's an action as well. And so this third person is the Holy Spirit. And the way the, the creeds say it is the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Father exists. He begets the Son. From the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit proceeds. And so that's that's kind of, it sounds right, but boy, I just can't settle on that. Why is the Holy Spirit then the person? It, it doesn't seem to answer that for me. I, I don't get that part. Um, and so that that's the concept. That's kind of the, the idea behind it. Um, and so why isn't there a fourth person? There's no room for a fourth person. What's the fourth person going to do? If the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, and the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is that love, if He is that love in action, then what's missing from that equation that we've got to have a fourth one in there? Respect? That's part of love. You know, it just, it, there's no place, there can be no less than a Trinity, there can be no more than a Trinity in that way of thinking. So um, let that one rock you to sleep tonight. knowing himself is like 
if that is the sun, wouldn't that mean that there is some separation between the two? Yes. Yeah, so it's simply the, the knowledge itself of himself. That's what they're saying. <laughs> so the question is, why is there then a separation? Why isn't God just one person? It, wouldn't yeah. that imply that there is now a difference in the nature of the Father and Son in that model? Yeah, I, I don't think that I'm defending something that I'm not 100% on board with, so I'm going to give it my best shot. No, that, that won't work because the Father's comprehension of the Son is complete. So when he looks at the Son, he sees in the Son everything about himself. So they share the same nature. But we can't say then they're two different beings with the same nature but different because now if you have divine nature in two beings, now you have two gods. And then God's not comprehending himself. He's comprehending another god. So for him to comprehend himself, boy, this is really hurting my brain. So for God to comprehend himself, it must be the same nature because that's what he's, he's understanding is that divine nature. The, the one I don't get, like I said, is the Holy Spirit. I, I, it feels to me like the Holy Spirit turns into a force, and, and I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit next week and why he's not just a force. Um, so, yeah, that's open theism. That's uh, eternal functional subordination. And then the last kind of challenge or wrestle with, with uh, divinity that I want to talk about, unless you guys want to keep hammering on the, the Edwards thing, um, I'll let you guys go. I'll just sit down and... <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so like unexplainable why thinking of oneself would all of a sudden become another something. Well, it won't happen. With, so Lisa says, why would thinking about yourself create a second person? And that's a great question. It wouldn't for us. We don't create that way. God creates that way. He communicates to us that he said, let there be light, and there was. He didn't speak. There was nothing to speak into. He spoke in the fact that there was rationality, there was intelligence. That's why John translates it as, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Logos is rational thought. It is the reason. It is logic. That's why we talk about theology that comes from Logos. So when God thinks of something, it is. So why do we exist? Because God thinks about us. If God stopped thinking about us, we wouldn't exist. So when God thinks about himself, he thinks so completely, so thoroughly that it is a second person. That's that's Edwards' argument. I'm I'm can only go so far. <laughs> yeah, so just you know, rock yourself to sleep with that tonight, you know. <laughs> it it kind of hurts. Um are we done with that? Can I press on? Okay, yeah, my brain hurts. Okay, so we talked about Open theism. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you, man. <laughs> so we talked about open theism. God doesn't chooses not to know everything so that human beings can be free. Uh, eternal functional subordination. The Father and the Son. The Son subordinates to the Father from eternity past. The last one is a little bit, um, it's not quite as damaging to the doctrine of God, but it, it, I want to bring it up because it raises questions, and that's something called divine impassibility. That doesn't mean God won't let you pass him on the freeway. Um, what that comes from is from the Westminster Confession, when it talks about God, it says there is only there is but one only living true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. 
And so the, the debate comes down to that. What does it mean that God doesn't have passions? Sometimes that's presented as God doesn't have emotions. Um, the idea would be, and, and the argument goes like this, if God has emotions, if, if you can make God angry by something you do today, then God didn't know about it. And if God didn't know about it, then God's not omnipotent, omniscient. He didn't know that you were going to do that thing. So you could make him angry or you could surprise him where he'd be in heaven and go, ha, I didn't realize that, that Chris was going to do that. That's amazing. It, it, so God can't be that way. So that's what they say he mean, it means when he talks about he's without passions. Um, he, he can't be surprised or he can't wake up one morning and be grumpy. You go, I'm wiping out a galaxy. I'm in a bad mood. And then later that afternoon, go, man, I wish I hadn't done that. I just kind of got carried away, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. That's more in line with, with what passions are. Um, the other definition for passion is, have you ever heard of a passion play? A passion play was something that was originated during the Black Plague, where a town would go, Lord, if you spare us, we will, we will reenact the resurrection every year on Easter. And so they do these passion plays. It was a place in Germany, Oberammergau where they do passion plays. Passion, in another sense, has to do with suffering. And so another way to say this is God cannot suffer. It's impossible for God to suffer because for God to suffer would mean that he lacks something. Or how do you suffer if you don't have a body? If God is pure spirit, then he can't suffer. He can't get hurt. So God can't be injured that way. When I did some research on this, I was trying to work through this because I, I had some arguments with people about God not having emotions. I'm like, I'm not happy with that. That's not working for me. I went back. The Westminster Confession was written in the uh, 1600s, about 1640. And so I went and I found some dictionaries from that time period. And I said, what does passion mean? And I looked up passion, and what it meant was mood swings, being carried away with, with emotion or suffering. But it didn't mean emotion in general. Emotion in general was its own thing. So I think if we go back to the confession and we talk about passions, we're saying God doesn't, have, doesn't get carried away by his emotions and he doesn't suffer. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have emotions, does it? He reveals to us, I mean, he said of himself, God is love. That is at least an emotion um, and at least more. So the way I think about this is I go, wait a minute, he's without body, parts, or passions. So this is divine simplicity. He's not broken into different pieces. This is, he's, he doesn't have emotional swings. With a, he doesn't have a body. So let's talk about that for a second. God in this psalm says he will extend his mighty right arm. He says that his eyes rove across the earth looking for those who he will, uh, who, who he will serve. It talks about the, um, the offense rising up and being a stench in his nose. Does God have an arm, a nose, eyes? No, he's, he's most... Where'd it go? Uh, most pure spirit. He, he walked in the garden. He walked in the garden, in, in the Garden of Eden. He, he walked in front of Moses and paraded himself in front of Moses. Um, he only let Moses see his backside. He didn't show him his front, his face. He, he talked to Moses face to face in other instances. So what is the Bible talking about when it talks about these things? By the way, it also says that he will gather his children under his wings like a, a hen. Does, does God have wings? Is he a chicken? I mean, Jesus goes 
Jesus is a special case, and we'll talk about that differently. We're talking about God in his essence, God in, in, before the incarnation, let's say. Okay. So God is without body. And yet he communicates to us through what we call anthropomorphisms. Anthropos is, is Greek for human, man, and morphe is shape. So he talks to us about human shapes. So when he says, I will defend you with my right, mighty right arm, his, he's talking about something very real, isn't he? His power, his strength, he will defend us with all of his strength. My mighty right arm, not that mighty. <laughs> Really, I mean, you know, it's not that great. Plus, it only reaches so far. God's mighty right arm is much more powerful than this and is without limit. There's no place it's not. He can exercise his power anywhere. So what I'm saying is, when we say he's without body, he talks about his body, and he's talking about real attributes about himself, isn't he? His eyes rove, his, his omniscience parades through the earth, looking for whom he can serve. The... the, the um, the offense rises up into his nostrils like a stench. His holiness, his perfection is offended by sin. So it's talking about something real about God, but it's putting it in human terms that we can understand. So what if that's true with his passions as well? When he says, um, you are uh, my wrath flared up. Was he having a mood swing? Was that something that just caught him off guard? Was, no, he, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It has to mean something. And it's talking about offense to his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. It rises up because in time we did this. Uh, ten minutes before we hadn't, and then we did. And so it rises up in that way. So I think we have to be careful with this, um, um, God's impassibility, because we, we can't consider him to be this large rock in the sky who isn't phased by anything. He, he has reactions to what happens in time. But what happens in time doesn't change him, doesn't catch him off guard. It doesn't limit his omniscience, but it doesn't mean it's not real either. And so his impassibility, you got to be careful with that one, I think. I think that's that's got some problems. Is that cool? Okay, how about a cartoon? Oops, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> 